Hey everyone, thanks for checking out the Human Performance Outliers podcast. In case you haven't noticed, we are now up on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com backslash HPO podcast. You can also just click on the link in the podcast notes and it'll take you right to our page. For the listeners that have already joined us, thank you so much. Your support is greatly appreciated. Uh, We have some pretty cool goodies that we're rolling out for the Patreon supporters, including a front-of-the-line Q&A, some early podcast release options, as well as the chance to even join the show. So please consider checking out that page if you haven't yet. Also, if you do listen to us on a podcast hosting site, if you have the option, please consider subscribing. By subscribing, you'll get the most up-to-date episode as soon as it's released. Thank you very much, and enjoy the show. Uh, thank you for joining the show, uh, Doctor Tro. It's been uh, fun. Yeah, Tro, Tro, right? Tro, yeah. <laughs> we'll go with your yeah, with just... your your Twitter name. I think that's where people people see a lot of your info, and I know that's where I see a lot of the stuff that you've been been putting out there. And it's uh, it's been cool to see some of that stuff and like kind of your um, your your tools, I guess, that you've used with patients um, that have come to you for for a variety of reasons. It seems like, but. If you want to start by just kind of give us a bit of a background about yourself and kind of like what you've been up to and things like that, we can kind of jump into things from there. Yeah. So, um, so look, I, I'm a I'm a physician. My job is 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 basically um, to to help people with with disease. I'm opening up a medical weight loss practice. Um, it's currently under construction. It'll be in you know just outside of New York City. In the meantime, I've been doing online consultations. So I do uh, completely online weight management, uh, and it's super cool. I mean, a patient signs up with me, and I send them a scale. If they have high blood pressure, I send them a blood pressure cuff. And whatever measurements they take at home, it links straight up with me. We meet weekly. We get them to lose weight. We get them to get off their diabetes meds, their blood pressure meds. Uh, their glucometers link straight up with me. And I can track all of their metrics from home. And so uh, this has been, I've been doing this for about one year and with, with very good success. And I'm super, super excited about it. But I've wanted to serve my community. And so I'm, you know, opening up, I'm hanging a shingle uh, and opening up a physical location. So I'm excited about that. Awesome. Hey, Tro, because I know you were at one time. It seems like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you were you were you were a hospitalist, and you know you're doing and working night shifts. If, if not, yeah, that yeah. Seems like, and are you done doing that stuff? Or no, is this something you do partially part time. Yeah, I, look, I have to support. You know, everybody says, oh, the, and there's so much money to be made in 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 uh, in doing these low carb. You know, uh, giving out this low carb advice, but to be honest. Um, you know, I've I have to support myself through this. You know, I'm taking out a bank loan um, to get this you know practice open so I could get people healthy. Uh, so yeah, I moonlight. Uh, I still do work in the Yale New Haven Health System. Uh, so I'll moonlight there one or two nights a week. Moonlighting is basically you know I go in and I uh, help people out with acute medical issues uh, in the hospital. So yeah, I'm still doing that. Hopefully in a year or two that'll die down, but. Uh, Right now, you know, my focus is getting this weight loss practice up and going. Yeah, because it's, uh, I mean, you know, working working shift work, particularly if you're doing the night shift, can just for your own health, as you're probably discovering, is not the ideal situation. 
Yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of data on on shift work. It literally causes insulin resistance. So when you take, I mean, you know about all this data, guys. When you take people and you restrict their sleep, you will increase their you know fasting blood glucose. You'll make them more insulin resistant. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. Luckily, you know, I've somehow I've been able to lose 150 pounds and maintain it off. It's probably all water weight, though. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but somehow, despite the sleep, you know, issues, I've been I've been doing okay. Yeah, that was going to yeah, be I mean, kind of my question for you, or kind of a kickoff question, more or less. Was you know, I think a lot of times uh, you know, people identify you on Twitter as kind of the the low carb. Uh, um, doctor more or less in the sense that you've seemed to have had a lot of luck with yourself as well as a lot of patients kind of taking that approach was that something that you kind of had like an aha moment when it started working for you and then you started trying it with some of your patients and seeing a lot of success with that or was it like a different entry into entry into that approach yeah it's it's funny that you you mentioned that because that the aha moment actually there's two aha moments one of which Actually, you know, Dr. Baker, Sean kind of put me on, but I'll, I'll start way back. I mean, imagine my whole life I've been obese. Uh, you know, I've been in an obese household. Every single person in my family is obese, overweight. And I'm talking about my older brother, 450 pounds, mom, dad, you know, 300 pounds plus. I was 350 pounds. So my wife, when she was pregnant with our third kid, she asks me, you know, hey, you know, in a completely supportive way, are you going to be around to you know, play with our kids. And that really kind of hit me. And, and she, she challenged me. She's like, you're a smart diagnostician. You know, she scored on the 90th percentile of your, you know, internal medicine board exam. Why can't you figure this out? So this was about four years ago. And I went to the medical literature and I started looking, you know, what works. And what's funny enough is it's right there. If you look at every single trial that's not done on some metabolic ward, low carb diets do better. So I started there and I, you know, that's kind of where, where I first met Sean and we started interacting when I, I lost about 60 pounds. I'm on Twitter talking about low carb diets and Sean's like, whoa, 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 wait. He's like, why don't you try zero carb? And I'm like, zero carb, you're crazy, man. There's nothing more for me to do, you know, and I was complaining about getting lightheaded at the gym at the time, you know, this is a year in and I was so skeptical. I mean, you know, Sean could probably attest to this. We're trained as physicians to be skeptical and I was like, that guy's crazy. You know, what is he talking about? And so, you know, I don't know if you remember this, Sean, but you were like, why don't you try it for a month? And this is maybe like two years ago. And no, I so, remember it very well, man. <laughs> yeah. So let us, let's, let's put it this way. It was a humbling, humbling moment. So, so the first aha moment was going to the literature and my wife kind of challenging me, supporting me to, to, to do it. And, and you look in the literature, it's right there. Low carb is better. Uh, in any trial that's you know out with uh, uh, in the in an ad lib setting, basically in the free setting, so and and the data overwhelmingly supports it. So that's where I started. It was an evidence based approach. It wasn't anything more than that. I was a you know evidence based doctor doing an evidence based approach, and it worked successfully. And then I started having some symptoms in the gym. You know, I was lightheaded and. You know, I, I didn't know what was going on, and so I turned to people like Sean, Ted Naiman, went online, kind of poked around, and, 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 you know, I remember Sean was like, do it for a month and then get back to me. 
And I was like, you're crazy. This is going to get worse if I don't have any carbs. And I'm sure, Zach, you, you know all about low-carb athletics. So, um, so I went and I did a month, and it was the worst month of my life. I mean, it was awful. You know, I went to zero carbs for a month, and it was terrible. And I remember the fourth week in, I'm like about to pass out in the gym, and I'm, you know, cursing the name of Sean Baker. And I remember the day because I, I remember it so vividly. My wife's like, you know what? Just, just why don't I make you breakfast? And this is like four weeks into zero carb. She makes me a huge breakfast with eggs, bacon. I was like a pound and a half of bacon. And I remember just you know, going to town on this breakfast and then going to the gym and it was like night and day. Like I I felt like something completely came over me. I had complete resilience, no soreness, no lightheadedness, felt like total total different person. Like all this energy came, you know, on top of me. Like I just was amazing. Amazing workout and I and after two hours of working out or one and a half hours, I was ready to go. Anyway, fast forward later, then I started doing research on ketogenic diets and athletics, and lo and behold, there's plenty of data to support it. So that's kind of like the two aha moments I had, and then I stopped cursing Sean's name. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, and to be fair, I think, and I think you should, I mean, I think it's important for people to be skeptical. You know, what I'm saying is pretty damn crazy. It certainly goes against most of the dietary dog and what we've been taught there, and so I think it, it pays to be skeptical, but ultimately results are going to be you know, what carries the day, you know, so we'll see what happens long term with all this stuff. But um, one of the things, one of the little kind of things you, you mentioned was when you were talking about the research, you said in free living conditions. And I think that is the crux of a lot of this stuff, because I know you go back and forth with some of the guys that are talking about, you know, in metabolic ward studies, you know, when we control protein and we control calories, carbohydrates versus fat reduction or calorie reduction don't seem to have much difference. And I know there's a lot of literature that supports their position on that. But again, we have to we have to be in the real world at some point and say, what does what happens in the real world of real people? And certainly, I mean, clearly, clearly there are people that, that lose weight by restricting calories. We see it all the time, you know, that they can do it. These bodybuilders, these professional fitness people, they do that approach, you know. But again, that takes a particular type of person, um, and I think that is something that, uh, you know, you bring a unique perspective because you, and I'm, I'm going to be pretty crass here, you're a big fat dude. I mean, you are not healthy. I mean, you, I mean, you know, honestly, I mean, you go back and look at that and you and probably amazed how different your quality of life was and how uh, incredibly, you know, sick you were, you know, from, uh, from uh, you know, just, just physically, and, and probably there's some psychological stuff that goes into that, probably, and you know that better than I do. I've never been in that position. I mean, I was 300 pounds at one point. I mean, I wasn't morbidly obese. I was a big guy. I could lose. I could have lost, you know, some pound and gotten leaner, but I was never in the position you are. So that's one of the nice things that, um, you know, you bring to the table that you can relate to these patients that come from that same background, that, you know, and how, you know, that's a, this is a, a whole different physio physiology and a whole different psychology than many of us that have an experience that don't that don't have that. And I think that's a huge advantage that you have. But let's talk a little bit about your um, what was it like being you know how 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 damn heavy were you at one point, Trevor? What was your biggest? Yeah, I was. You know, let's rewind four years ago. I was 350 pounds. You know, I'm five foot eleven. So BMI of whatever fifty or or around. I mean, I was I was big on all accounts, and you you've probably seen the pictures on on Twitter. Uh, you know, one of the things that you said that really stuck out to me is 
you know, calorie restriction, does it work? And and I find that actually now, if I calorie restrict, I'll immediately see results in my body composition. But there was no way that four years ago or three years ago I was going to calorie restrict. It was just impossible. You know, I couldn't prevent myself from finishing finishing the box of ice cream. And you talk about kind of relating to obese people. You know, I know what it feels like to sit on you know in an airplane seat. And having your kind of fat belly roll over onto your neighbor's, uh, you know, your neighbor's seat and feeling that shame or having to ask for a a seatbelt extender or, you know, when you're kind of uh, overhearing a joke about a fat guy and and you can't help but feel uh, embarrassed, even if it's not about you. Um, You know, I know what it's like going up the stairs or going down the stairs and worrying, you know, am I going to mess up my knees? So there's a you know that strong psychological component is absolutely there the emotional component and I think that um having somebody to relate to you and and tell you kind of hey 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 wait a second you know you're not lazy you just want a convenient option you're not fat you ju- you're just overfed you know you just have a hunger that's that's uh you know that's uncontrollable that needs to be addressed um you know people to relate to you and be able to make you feel empathized and that you can, you know, make a change pretty easily. So, yeah, you know, I've been through it. I've, I've felt it. I felt, the, you know, the emotional side of it. And I think that's what relate, you know, why I, I'm able to relate with people as, you know, particularly my patients and make them feel safe, you know, and, and I, you know, believe it or not, one of the beauties of a telemedicine consultation is that you never have to you know, put your makeup on, get dressed, sit in that cramped <laughs> exam chair. You ever been to the doctor? The chairs are like this big and the exam table is like that big. So I think that, you know, the really obese who have worked with me actually really like the fact that it's online and they can do this from their own home, you know, a safe, safe environment. Yeah, I think that paradigm is going to radically transform medicine. I think there's so much, you know, and, and I do a little bit of consulting, you know, obviously not medical at, at this time, but it's more, you know, nutrition, this lifestyle type, type stuff. And I truly enjoy spending an hour with somebody and just, you know, talking with them about whatever. And, you know, and, and before where I was, you know, seeing, you know, as an orthopedic guy, I was seeing, I mean, shit, I mean, I'd see some patients, I mean, it would literally be, I'd have three patients to see in 15 minutes. And I mean, you know, and you got, you still got to do all the paperwork. And so it's just crazy the how, how crazy the system gets, you know, seeing 60 patients a day and then overseeing a couple of physical physicians assistants that all have 40 patients a day and being responsible for all that. It's just absurd and crazy. But let me go, you know, this is kind of a, you know, a story that's kind of maybe offensive to some people, but I'll tell it anyway. So I was on a plane, you know, and there was an obese person you know sitting you know in the next seat over or two to an aisle over or something like that and they needed a seat belt extender right and this kind of goes to some of the some of the you know the, the discrimination or what you know whatever the ridicule that goes at and so the the the, the they didn't need, they needed one and the airline hostess stewardess was radioing you know to the to the maintenance people that you know they needed a seat belt extender on you know seat 12 g or whatever it was you know and the, the maintenance guy on the background goes, all right, I got a hog strap coming in. You know, that, that, you know, that I mean, I, you know, I kind of laughed at the cut. Kind of, but it's still it's still kind of, you know, it, I'm sure it upsets people and stuff like that. But let me ask you this question, because uh, what do you think about those people that say that obese? We should accept people that are obese and, and not do anything about it. We, you know, there's this sort of 
you know, fat acceptance or, you know, obesity acceptance and just accept those people for what they are and leave them alone. Do you, do you feel that is, is something as someone who's been there? What do you, what are your thoughts on that? Oh man, you're, you're really putting me on the spot here. Okay. So I think that, uh, so there's two paradigms, right? There's a certain amount of, uh, being overweight that's healthy, right? So there's the obesity paradox where, you know, a BMI of between 25 to 29 or even up to mid-30s is actually, uh, you know, they may have a survival benefit, particularly at an older age when, you know, nutrition issues become a real big problem and, you know, mal- malnutrition becomes a problem. So, so but, but now that, you're facing a paradigm. Yeah, so now you're facing a paradigm where a little bit of overweight is okay, but then now you're talking about kind of these magazines like Cosmopolitan, which just had like a 500-pound woman, you know, in a bikini eating like a, you know, Haagen-Dazs ice cream, and kind of trying to make that sexy and acceptable. And and you know, at, at the end of the day, I think, why are we here, right? Why are we in the place where we're having to accept morbid obesity and i think it's because these people are so disenfranchised they've been told to eat less and exercise more and and they failed so many times just like i failed so many times and they come to a point where you know as an obese person you have to build up your ego do you know how many times i've been told i'm fat you know or you know fat jokes like you can't let that affect you you and so you have to build up your ego to a point where you have to accept yourself and be able to deflect all the negativity. So in one sense, I, I think, look, man, these people have to feel like normal people. They have to be able to you know, go about their daily lives. And from an emotional perspective, how else can they do that without accepting themselves? So if you're my patient and you're talking to me about you know, accepting yourself and shame and letting go of these emotions – I'm going to support you and I'm going to tell you to accept your obesity, but on a societal level to make it like okay to be obese and, and love your fat, you know, I don't, and from a public health standpoint, I think that's a disaster. You know, if we let people with morbid obesity kind of think that that's, you know, health-wise okay, you know, they're going to, you know, be facing early death or, you know, limb loss, organ damage. So how, is, how am I as a doctor supposed to say that that's okay? I don't know if there's any way I can reconcile that. So you understand that there's this paradigm here that I have to, you know, where you want to empathize with patients, but at the same time, you know, be, uh, tell them the truth. Like, hey, man, you know, at 300, at 350 pounds, I, I would have died 20 years younger. Yeah, it seems like there's definitely has to be like a balancing act between, you know, putting them in a position to be, feel comfortable around you so that they're willing to kind of take the small steps necessary to get to where, you know, where you, you two would agree on is a good end goal for them, but not necessarily like guilt them or shame them into feeling like they have to, cause that's not going to be a kind of a sustainable motivation. And, um, you know, I think the interesting thing too now is we're getting, we've got adults now who, who have been, you know, obese since they were very, very young. So it's, it's no longer a case where, okay, we had this, this, uh, this, this, individual who was fit and healthy through their teenage years and their early 20s and then started getting overweight and ended up being you know obese and you know that person can still connect to what it was like to kind of feel feel more at a healthy weight whereas now it's like we've got you know kids who are just you know early elementary school and are already 
you know, overweight and, you know, they have no real connection point to that either. So they've almost, I guess, normalized it to some degree. So I think it's easy for society to look at that and be like, well, how can this be wrong? They were essentially born with it, you know, like, whereas in the past you could say, no, this person was kind of at a healthy weight their most of their life. And it wasn't until they got a little older, you know, stopped working out as much. It's not as easy to kind of pinpoint anymore. Yeah, look, I, you know, I'm I'm so happy that you brought up this kind of school children, and and I want to take a step back to a point that I mentioned is that we've been given wrong advice. I mean, I have a nutritionist online on Twitter saying that, you know, for sports performance, young athletes, you know, middle school and high school athletes should be drinking chocolate milk, <laughs> you know, and so and this is a nutritionist, you know, giving this advice out, and I'm just absolutely floored. So not only are the you know children like you're saying we have an obesity epidemic are they uh, growing up you know eating processed food like I was I, I was a child of the you know 80s and 90s um, they're growing up eating only processed food and they're growing up with childhood obesity all throughout their adult life but they're we've been constantly been told you know just false things you know carbs are not needed. You know, for exercise, you know, you do not need chocolate milk after you have gym class. Uh, I mean, these, this is just ridiculous. And I face this every day where I tell people, hey, look, guys, I, I went from the 99th percentile VO2 max, which is a measure of kind of your exercise capacity um, uh, and your breathing capacity, 99th percentile, I mean, the worst to the top one percentile without any carbs whatsoever. So... You know, when I tell this to, you know, PhDs in, in nutrition and nutritionists, you know, they all kind of clamor back to, no, 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 chocolate milk is you know, perfectly acceptable as a post-workout, you know, drink. Or they clamor to uh, their, you know, you need carbs for brain health. I mean, this is the kind of false stuff that that I'm up against right now is, you know, telling my patients, hey, no, you're, you're going to the gym, you're doing CrossFit, you, you know, you lost 20, 30 pounds. No, you don't need any carbs. You know, you don't need any carbs for activity uh, and to, to even perform at a very high level. So, you know, not only are we facing the fact that they've been grown up as obese, but, you know, we're facing the fact that they've been lied to by, you know, clinicians, you know, not really lied to, I don't want to say, maybe just ignorance. Because uh, I didn't know either. Three years ago before, you know, I looked at the data, I, I didn't know either. But the data is there. You know, you, you had um, Alejandro Ferretti on who talked about, you know, low-carb uh, hit. And, I mean, the data is there. It's published. You know, I think Ciprian and him worked together on that uh, that paper. Um, you know, there's plenty of other data of ketogenic diets in um, – you know, gymnasts, in CrossFit athletes, in marathon runners, that it's perfectly acceptable option, particularly if there's body composition issues and, and fat to be lost. So, you know, we have to spread this this message that, hey, you know, you want to get fit and go to the gym? Well, you don't need to, you know, carb load like the personal trainer is telling you. Yeah, you know, the one of the other thing I find really interesting with the performance argument is, you know, when we're talking about nutrition and performance, like, first of all, we're kind of, we're, we're, we're playing around with adult recess at that point. Um, you know, that's, we're, we're getting way ahead of ourselves in terms of like just general health and nutrition. Um, you know, we, we, we decide to look at, well, here's the Olympic medalists. This is what their diet is. It's like, we're asking like 
the the vast majority of people to compare themselves to someone that they have very little in common with. Um, you know, from a activity lifestyle standpoint, as well as probably a genetic standpoint, as well as probably more or less an ability to uh, kind of make it through the process that they've been kind of put in. Because I don't see a whole lot of, um, you know, elite athletes or Olympians going and designing their own nutrition. They're essentially being put into a program. So then you have to ask yourself, I, I think you have to ask yourself anyway, is what are happening to the people that didn't get through that program. And I've said this in other podcasts too. It's like we've got a whole bunch of high school age students that show a lot of promise in specific sports. And ultimately a few of those end up going going to the professional level. You know, my question has always been like, why aren't we looking at the people that had all that promise that didn't get through? And if we did look at them, would we find that a different nutritional approach would maybe allow them to make it to that high level as well? And it was at least in part, you know, this 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 uh, idea that they need to be high carb in order to perform at an elite level, and they just didn't make it through that gauntlet, more or less. Um, but then, you know, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here too with this, and it's like it's like you were getting to. It's like if I'm working with an athlete and they're 20 pounds heavier than what they probably would need to be to meet their full potential, regardless of that, someone who can run you know, say a 14 minute 5k or a 20 minute 5k, uh, you know, to get into like, take this chocolate milk after this workout in order to, you know, recover from it and run faster. We're, we're, we're not dealing in the right area there. It's like, first let's work on the goal of getting you to, you know, the weight that you would be most healthy to run your fastest 5k at. And then we can start looking at how do we use some of these, uh, some of these like kind of performance enhancer type carbohydrate sources as as maybe something that can pop you over the edge or something like that you know versus like the power weight ratio side of things and you know I think for you for you Dr. Troy I think you probably saw that a lot when you were losing the weight it's like your performance is going to increase just by losing some weight you wouldn't even have to get any faster from a physiological standpoint like you just you're carrying less with the with the um, same same muscle output or same power output, and I think a lot of people are in that window. Maybe not to the degree of you know leading, needing to lose hundred plus pounds, but um, certainly somewhere along that line between ideal and and you know overweight. Well, look, you know, this is what I say. I, I absolutely believe in in some form of carbohydrate periodization for the right athletes in the right situation. It definitely. There's a use to it, um, but I say this all the time. It is completely unnecessary for anybody who's not, you know, making a living off of their mm -hmm. athletic career. And even in that case, you know, I, I think it may be questionable. Just like you said, depending on the goals, if the athlete has to cut ten pounds, you know, a different diet may work. And I mean, you know, there's enough data in, in elite athletes, I think, to to use it. And you know, for example, there's a paper by um, Antonio, Paul Antonio, who who used ketogenic diets in elite gymnasts, mm -hmm. where body composition is probably a, a major issue, and there was no differences in performance. So I think that, you know, I'm, I'm upset really at the framework where, where people 
you know, the lay people are told you need to exercise, right? And you, and then they're told, oh, you're exercising, you need to carb load. Mm. And I think that it's completely unnecessary for 99%, 99.9% of people. And, you know, it's just, it's not doing them any service. It's, it's not true to say that carbs are needed. It's just not. And, you know, one of the things I tell my patients is, look, you know, on a Cooper's test, I went from the, the worst you can be to the top 1% with no carbs. And even, you know, you were talking about just with the weight loss, I'll see performance effects. But even in the last year or so where my weight has been stable, you know, I've gone from a, you know, a, a two mile time of north of 13 minutes to I just ran an 11 minute two mile. Uh, this was uh, maybe two weeks ago. So, you know, and without well, this is completely you know zero carb and and you know uh, a fasted state. So I, I think you can make improvements even within the framework, even within um, you know without significant changes to body composition. So you know, I, I it just pisses me off that my patients are coming in saying, "Hey, my trainer said I need to, you know, drink chocolate milk." I mean, I just can't deal with that. You know, it's yeah, and people, I don't know. This, people still have a I think a a low enough level understanding of like nutrition and kind of stuff like that where you know that they you know, like we look at chocolate milk and think right away like there's a multitude of better options even if you're looking to go for a carbohydrate protein blend that matches that three or four to one ratio that a high carb athlete may benefit from and you know but these people they don't know that either they're like oh, okay well if this person said it then it must be right yeah, if Michael Jordan's on that Wheaties box, you yeah. know, he m- must be healthy. Tro, let me let me interject because there's a couple points you brought up that I think are that are worth uh, talking about. So one, you know, three, four, you know, four years ago, back when you were obese guy, you were seeing patients, you were seeing internal medicine patients. Obviously, many of them were suffering from the ills of metabolic disease and obesity. What kind of advice were you giving them then? And and, and did you feel that? Or did you get any feedback from patients that are saying, look, there's this big 355, 50-pound dude telling me how to eat. Am I going to listen to him? Did, you, did that ever bother you? Did that enter your sense of mind? Am I, should I be giving nutritional advice? Or, you know, Because it's not, I haven't figured out how to do it for me. And then the other thing that you said was now that you are, you know, we could call it metabolically healthy. You know, you're, at, you're, at a, you're at a nice body weight, decent body composition, that you say this cow restriction kind of works a little better now. So now you're kind of more like a normal athlete. You're, you're seeing these guys, Lane Norton and those guys are dealing with that are metabolically healthy folks. And now we can say, okay, restrict your calories 10%, up your protein, eat a little leaner, and that seems to work. And I think that's a different situation physiologically than you're talking to this 350-pound obese middle-aged guy or 250-pound, you know, uh, you know perimenopausal woman. They're different. They're they're different species almost. And, you know, I, I, I'm I'm saying it a little bit facetiously, but I mean, it really is. It's not apples to apples. So, talk about what it was like to give nutritional advice as a 350 pound overweight guy, and let's talk a little bit about the differences between. And Zach kind of already kind of touched on this. Somebody who's already there, healthy. What things work and what things don't work in these patients that that aren't there. Yeah, I mean, look, it was the most challenging thing to have a new diabetic and tell them, you know, the, the standard advice for me would have been, you know, four years ago or three years ago would have been, look, uh, you're overweight, I'm overweight, we all have to lose a little bit of weight, why don't you go talk to the nutritionist? And I send them to the nutritionist and they come back and nothing nothing changes, right? So that was the standard approach for me. And how did I reconcile it? You know, I said, look, 
you know, this is something we all deal with. And, and I try to empathize with them and let them know that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with the same things they're struggling with. And, and really what was going on was I'm empathizing with them because I'm just as, I was just as confused as they were. I didn't know the reasons why in myself just as much as they didn't. And if you asked me then, you know, four years ago, Tro, why are you overweight? You know, I didn't have the answer. I mean, people would ask me, like my mentors would ask me, uh, you know, my the hospital director would ask me, you know, the chief of staff would ask me, you know, why are you overweight? You know, are you stressed eating? Are you depressed? And, you know, I, if anybody who knows me knows I'm like an out kind of going guy, an extrovert, kind of laugh out loud. I've never been a depressed in, in a day in my life, but but I would even think like maybe I am depressed. Maybe I am stress eating. Like I didn't know. I had no clue. And when my patients come, they don't know why. They don't know why they're overweight. They've tried everything, and they, and maybe it's genetics. That that's what they fall on, and that's what I fall on. Um, but really, the bottom line now, knowing what I know, is I was fat because I was hungry, and my patients are fat because they're hungry, because their brain signal, you know, their brain is telling them you're you're still hungry, uh, for for a number of reasons. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. The approach is different when you first start. When you first start, I don't tell any one of my patients to count calories. I don't tell them to track anything except keep their carbohydrates extremely low. Uh, and usually they, they have a good sense of that. Very few of them are encouraged to track. And I tell all of them to eat until they're full. And this works, you know, I have a like 80% success rate for, for, for massive weight loss. So this has worked pretty uniformly, and it rarely doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, we go back and we track a little bit, and we try to diagnose what's going wrong. So every single patient that starts is told, you know, there's no restriction except carbohydrate and sugar restriction. Um, so now, what, well, what happens? Well, you know, what happened in me? You know, I lose 100 pounds, and my appetite is completely changed. It's not dysregulated. I have a I respond to food normally now. If I eat, I'm, I get full off of much less. And, uh, yeah, I notice right away, like, let's say I'm stressed out or, you know, I'm worried about the construction of my practice. You know, I'm heading back and forth to the to the job site and kind of making sure things are going okay. I forget to eat sometimes. And and I lose weight and I drop and I actually cut. My body fat will, will drop down because I didn't eat for two days and I didn't really pay attention to that. So... So, yeah, I can calorie restrict now and almost inconsequentially not even think about it. But there was no way I can get through, you know, one meal three years ago. I mean, there was absolutely zero way I could go without finishing that ice cream box or with, you know, my wife would literally hide ice cream from me. She would hide cereal from me. I mean, it was that bad. Uh, and, and not in a way that was malicious, but she would. She'd be like, you're finishing all the ice cream. I want some, you know. Mm -hmm. My wife is like petite. She's never had a weight problem in her whole life. She's like, you know, BMI of like 20 or something. It's just she's she's never had these issues. Um, so, so yeah, it's absolutely the the diet for me has changed as my weight has changed, and the same thing happens with my patients. Uh, they find that they get less and less hungry as things go on, and they find that they're eating less. And and that's how they continue to lose more weight. I think after the first, you know, twenty percent weight loss. You know, we had Ted Naven on a while ago, and he he likes to talk about you know the protein leverage theory. And some people think that you're going to eat until you get enough protein. And you know, as you know, as you're well aware, most of the food that you see in the grocery store is pretty 
not only protein poor, but it's also pretty just nutrient poor in general. And I think, you know, again, I think this is why a lot of people have success on a meat-heavy diet is because it's so nutritionally dense, you know, both calorically and, you know, just, just nutrition in general. And I, and I agree with your point. I think that's the biggest thing. Hungry people eat crap. They eat junk food. They're susceptible to, you can't walk by that plate of brownies without taking one or two, or, or you know, you can't have that bite of cake. You got to eat the whole piece of cake. Hungry people, you know, they have a hard time. They really struggle with that. And it's one of the most difficult things to deal with. And, you know, you can say restrict calories for a while. And, you know, some really disciplined people can do it for a few months. And I do that myself, you know, when I, and again, I was never morbidly obese, but when I, when I decided I didn't want to be 300 pounds anymore, I mean, I lost, you know, 50 pounds in three months and I, and I just, I, I calorie restricted. I exercised more. I did the calories in calories out thing. And I, and you know, I'm a pretty disciplined person. You know, I'm a, I'm a lifelong athlete. I, I can push myself. I don't mind being uncomfortable, but I got to tell you that was tough. I mean, it really was. And then, and then to say, okay, now I'm at goal weight. Can I, can, can I continue to do this? And the answer was no, clearly I'm not going to walk around the rest of my life being hungry because it's, it's just literally a, a physiologically not a good place to be. And, you know, again, if we look at most animals in the world, you know, again, most animals don't choose to be hungry. They eat to society when that, whenever they can. And I think that there's, there's a lot of uh, conservation in that, in that physiology with, with human beings who are still animals. Yeah, I think, look, ultimately there's hormonal reasons why people are not hungry on a meat-based diet and a ketogenic diet, a very low-carb diet. Uh, and and there's a number of reasons why it works, and I've gone through this on multiple accounts. You know, one, and this is for all the sciencey people, the glycemia itself uh, creates a decreased desire. So the improved glycemia, the fact that your blood glucose is stable, makes you uh, not desire hyperpalatable foods. When we take somebody, we put them in an MRI, we give them a little bit of insulin. Okay, and we watch their blood sugar just drop just a little bit, and we put them in an fMRI and we look what happens. It it their desire for for hyperpalatable food goes up. Like the part of the brain that's like give me the lucky charms lights up. So if you improve glycemia by any means, the the appetite's going to get fixed. So then what are other specific things? But that, you know, low carb or meat based diet is not the only uh, very low carb ketogenic diet. They're not the only diets that improve glycemia. You can improve glycemia with a plant based diet too. Uh, so what are the differences with a meat-based diet? Well, if you look at uh, very low-fat diets and you compare them to very uh, high-protein or high-fat you know, uh, high diets uh, that, are, that restrict carbohydrates, there's a couple of key differences. One of them is CCK, which is an enzyme that kind of closes down the pylorus, the, the part of the stomach that uh, lets the food go into the intestines. And CCK also, so it works on closing that pylorus and making your stomach distended and making you feel full. But it also works on the brain to let you know, hey, you don't need to eat anymore. You're 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 full. When you uh, when you're in a ketogenic diet or a meat-based diet or a, a diet high in proteins and fats, that CCK is elevated. And when you compare it to somebody who's not on on a low-fat diet, you know they don't have these elevated CCKs. They're just not. It takes carb. It takes. Uh, uh, protein and fat to kind of kind of peak that the the CCK, and what what else? You know, there's also neuropeptide YY. So if you look compare low fat diet to a high you know low carb diet, a year later, the neuropeptide YY will be preserved in a in a low carb diet and not in a low fat diet. Which means if you take neuropeptide YY and you inject it in in 
any one of us and we put us in front of a Chinese buffet, we're going to eat one third less. If we inject hmm. you know, CCK in us, we're going to eat one third less. So these enzymes are specifically, these peptides and these hormones are specifically preserved in a low-carb ketogenic diet. Well, what's the last thing? And I'm sure you know about this, Sean. You know, there's diet pills uh, uh, that have topiramate in them. Have you heard of this? Qsimia, uh, Sean, that has topiramate and fentramine. Basically, topiramate is a, is a seizure drug and a mood drug that was found to have a side effect of weight loss. And it works on the brain by, you know, working on the inhibitory parts of the brain. That's how it works for seizures. That's how it works for uh, appetite suppression. And if you give this drug to somebody, they lose about 10% of their body weight, Okay. Now, lo and behold, ketosis actually has the same exact effect. It works the same exact way. It prevents seizures. It inhibits certain parts of the brain. And it literally acts like this drug. So ketones are the last part of that equation that helps with the appetite. Um, and, and these are all specific to a meat-based, low-carb, ketogenic diet. And, you know, this is, this is the diet you should do if you want to stop being hungry. And this is what I tell people. Anybody who has binge eating, any one of my patients who has binge eating, food addiction, or is morbidly obese, you know, they're going on this diet because it works like no other. It, it helps you stop being hungry. Have you have worked with a patient that like you, you kind of use a ketogenic high fat or zero carb approach with and you find that they kind of have that same issue but with fat instead of carbohydrates where they have a hard time – uh, regulating appetite to a degree that's going to induce weight loss, or is that just? Yeah, yeah, no, I get that. I this is like my number one or number two consult now is I've been on a low carb diet, you know, for X amount of years, and now I'm starting to gain weight. And so this comes back to what Sean was talking about—the protein leverage uh, that Ted Naiman talked about, and I, and I and I watched his talk. I love that talk, by the way. Um, yeah, so so I find that protein leverage typically works in the cases like that. So. I find the biggest causes of weight loss stalls may be overeating uh, very palatable, high fatty foods. Uh, and sometimes when you drop the fat down, you get good results. Uh, I want to say probably like 60, 70% of the time, if you encourage a patient to leverage protein uh, who's been on a low carb diet and is now seeing a little bit of weight loss stalling or weight gain, and you really kind of take a look at what they're doing wrong, they're going to tell you they're eating like a pound of cheese or, you know, a ton of nuts or, uh, you know, nuts and cheese is like the big two. I find that people are, you know, they find it so tasty that they just end up eating, you know, much more than, much more than they want. Uh, um, and so if you encourage them to kind of leverage protein a little bit more, they, they do better. Um, so, yeah, I, I do find that, you know, certain fatty foods are also hyperpalatable, and I do believe in protein leverage for most patients. I think some patients that the protein leverage theory may not work are the really, really brittle diabetics, uh, you know, or type, you know, who may get glycemia changes, uh, you know, people who are like almost type 1, like type one and a half diabetes, who really aren't making a lot of insulin that you know that protein leverage may not work but yeah absolutely i agree with both of you guys i believe in protein leverage as a way of uh increasing satiety i believe that you know the increased fats and the the fact that you know i don't i've never met anybody who could eat like one or two macadamia nuts for example <laughs> you know you know what i mean they're just very high fatty foods and and they're salty and they just hit that spot and people end up eating you know more than I think they would want. So yeah, I do think that high fatty foods can 
um, can be a problem for some, but it, it really depends on the person. Yeah, I know when we had Dr. Naiman on, you know, he was he was saying like, you know, what he sees is like this scenario of almost a similar side of things on the high fat where I think he, he affectionately termed them butter chuggers because they start the day with like a four or 500 calorie cup of coffee. That's just like, you know, full of butter and pure fat essentially with none of the protein leverage um, to go with it. So it's like, I'm intrigued with this too, because I think with the ketogenic diet that there's been a, at least in the onset, there was a fairly strong emphasis on restricting protein. So then we started seeing folks hitting the numbers or percentages that were much closer to what we see in the average of standard American diet, where you're down near 10, 12, 13% of your intake being from protein. Whereas then you see folks that are doing a more like liberated protein, high fat, low carb diet. And, um, you know, they're getting up closer to 20, even 30%. And it seems like that is, uh, like you said, for folks who don't, aren't dealing with some, some issue, like a type one diabetic type setup is, is probably a more satiating approach and, um, gonna maybe, it's gonna maybe kind of put you in a position to, to eat an appropriate amount and not accidentally go, go overkill with the macadamia nuts and the butter coffee and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I think that there's some people that need to increase their fat. I mean, I, I get the second probably most, you know, uh, most common consult I get is how, what is my protein target? What is my fat target? And I tell people just eat real food and you don't really need to care about it. Mm. The only times that I've said, you know, maybe you should increase your fat uh, are people, there's two probably subtypes that could benefit from more fat, I think, particularly. One would be, you know, the chronic dieter who's, you know, afraid of fats and, and they've been told I got to eat grilled chicken and, and they don't put any, you know, they don't put any fat on and they're all they're doing is eating grilled chicken. So, you know, I, I think that type of person may benefit from a little bit more fat. And, and you know, n you know, to get CCK, really to release it requires fat and protein. They both kind of release it. So just imagine you need a little bit of both. Um, and then the other type of person that, uh, that would benefit from a little bit more fat is, you know, anybody who has a, a issue that specifically relates to production of ketones, whether it be seizures, whether it be, uh, migraines, uh, whether it be mood disorder that's kind of benefited with having a higher ketone level. Those are the people that I may encourage to increase the fat on. So, you know, I think ultimately when people ask me like, well, you know, how much fat should I eat? I, was, I always tell them, well, or how much protein should I eat? I tell them, well, look, if you're worried about protein, are you a 70-year-old, you know, sedentary, you know, female or are you a 30-year-old athlete, you know, because there's two dim completely different goals there. Um, and same thing with fat. It, it really depends on the person. Majority of my weight loss patients, I'm telling them, you don't need to even worry about your fat percentage or your uh, your protein percentage as long as you're eating real food. You know, you you, you can't really go under, um, you know, like a thirty percent or twenty to thirty percent protein level if you're eating steaks and you know chicken and fish like and eggs. You you really can't you know, overdo it. It's the, it's the butter chuggers that you specific, who, who kind of hear about, you know, bulletproof coffee or hear about, you know, uh, ketogenic diets and really have no clue what they're doing. And they're just kind of trying to mimic what they see, 
you know, and, and those, my patients aren't those people because I spend an hour and a half with them on our first visit to educate them what's right and wrong. So I don't really run into that problem, um, you know, because I'm educating them. Sure. One of the interesting, you know, just, just to back up a little bit, you know, I mean, the CCK, cholecystokinin, you know, obviously is named for the fact that it causes the gallbladder to contract as well. But that's interesting information you brought up there with regards to satiety. Um, we had a guy named Joe Binley on, I don't know if you listen to that podcast, but he is a, uh, you know, he's a, he's basically a competitive bodybuilder. He just trained one of the winners for the Mr. Olympia contest, the one of the females who won the physique contest. So he's very good at, you know, understanding how to get people, you know, lean, obviously. And one of the, and he's, and he has adopted a, a pretty much a carnivorous approach and he's talks about, uh, you know, cycling proteins and fats. And so, you know, having, days where you're higher protein, lower fats, and then throwing in a fat refeed from time to time. And I think that's something that, you know, I, you know, I naturally kind of, not that I'm trying to be a bodybuilder, get down to 6% body fat or anything like that, but for me to maintain good performance and, and function, I find that, you know, I can go, you know, I can go two, three, four days eating relatively leaner. And then I find, you know, I need, I need to get some, I need to get a little more calories or a little more fat in there. And so I think that can be a strategy when you get down to those, you know, more, athletic levels but uh you know it's just a little bit uh you know new insight i think on people doing this because uh you know i think from a modern human perspective you know we've always been eating carbohydrates it's clear you know all the historical stuff since we you know since we since history's been around you know we've had grains in the diet you know and and then obviously Inuit in Alaska or, or Maasai were not bodybuilding. I mean, they, they, you know, they weren't lifting weights and doing that stuff. So it's hard to say what they what they would have what they would have looked like had they had those additional advantages of weight training and you know caloric surpluses for putting on muscle. So it's got a this new territory. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think the concept of refeeding in general, you know, whether it's carbohydrate refeeding. Uh, you know, every five to 10 days, I get a lot of questions about that. Like, should I do that? Athletes are like asking me, should I do refeeding every five to 10 days? And and I, I mean, I, or, you know, the concept of feasting. So, I mean, basically you're saying like, you know, you can only be, you know, normal caloric so long and expect to, uh, to, you know, you're, you're, if you're normal caloric, if, you're, if your calories are kind of ma- or isocaloric, sorry, if you're isocaloric so long, at some point, your performance is not going to be where you want it to be. So kind of going hypercaloric with a feast, I, I mean, I, I believe in that concept. And I think there's probably some metabolic benefits of going, of feasting, of, hy- of going hypercaloric. I mean, the way you ruin somebody's metabolism uh, Kevin Hall showed this is you put them through a biggest loser, you know, iso- in a, a hypocaloric state for a long time. Uh, you know, it's a great way to ruin somebody's metabolism. So we know how to ruin it. So I actually, I think, you know, there's no evidence for this, but I think the opposite is true. I think periodic feasting is probably healthy for the metabolism, uh, to give your body, to let your body know that, Hey, there's food available. You don't have to shut down my thyroid. Um, I think there's there, anecdotally, I find that that it's it's probably the case that it's beneficial. So yeah, I I think that it makes sense to me. Um, um, and in terms of the bodybuilding perspective, you know, I polled about 25 bodybuilders, uh, and you know, uniformly, they're all doing low carbohydrate, low fat, high protein diets when they're cutting. So that is the standard cutting diet, which is basically a ketogenic diet. 
So imagine a, a ketogenic diet with periodic refeeding with high-fat meals. I mean, I think it would be a huge, you know, where where the body's primed to use fats and you're giving it fats, you know, I think that it, it you know, it makes sense physiologically. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, you know, clearly, I mean, the one thing that I will say is, you know, if you want to get lean, you know, a bodybuilder can tell you how to do it. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Right. You know, you, you know, these guys are, are, you know, can do that, you know, and again, but again, we're talking two different populations here. What is, uh, what does your diet look like day to day? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, so, so, you know, I'm a little bit unique, probably for the, um, for the low carb community. I, I you know, generally I'm eating meat, fish, so ribeye, porterhouse, uh, salmon, uh, tuna, uh, you know, uh, I'll eat filet, um, I'll eat sirloin, eggs. Uh, but, you know, I'm I'm not like very strict on, on maintaining the fat, so I'll throw in egg whites. I don't, you know, I don't mind kind of restricting the fat a little bit. I'll have some whey protein. I don't. I don't mind using. I, I get very high quality whey protein that's been independently verified to be, you know, without contaminants. So I, I'm okay with uh, supplement use. I know a lot of people in the low carb community aren't. Uh, but after workout, you know, I'm just not hungry, and I know I need protein, so I'll kind of, uh, you know, use protein uh, for for instances like that. Um, you know, but regularly I'm eating real food. Uh, you know, I'm having meat, fish shrimp eggs you know some veggies here and there i mean i don't go crazy with the veggies rare fruit maybe some rare berries something like that but but very rare i mean that's about it man i can't think of much more you know it's pretty pretty non-diverse diet what do you think you know we had i don't know if you heard we had dr paul mason on a couple weeks ago it was a pretty popular show and he kind of talked about the essentiality of fiber or, you know, whether it's truly essential. Do you have any opinions on fiber? I know Ted Naaman seems to be sometimes pro-fiber. You know, obviously, I I think it's overrated. I think Paul Mason kind of gave us that same conclusion. Do you have any thoughts on do we need X amount of fiber? Do we need to feed our gut microbiome so they can make special, you know, short-chain fatty acids? Is this something we have to do? Is it putting the cart before the horse to, to think that we have to have X prescribed microbiome to truly be healthier. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't think there's any way to answer this. Really, I don't think there's really compelling data either way. I can tell you that when I've looked at the data on fiber, just because we've talked about this and I've gone to the to the data, you have some people whose colon just does not move. So adding more stuff, more volume into a colon that does not move you know, who has a certain type of constipation is not going to help, right? So I think there was a study from Korea with, with people with basically, you know, uh, immobile colons. You know, giving them a ton of fiber, how is that going to help them if their colon's not moving? It's not able to push that stuff through. But then, you know, so when we're talking about constipation and do you need fiber, it matters, well, what type of constipation is it? You know, so I think for the overwhelming majority on a crap standard diet, that fiber will probably help them. And I think that, you know, for people on a standard American diet, you know, fiber is probably beneficial because it'll make them more full. It'll take up space in their stomach. It'll prevent them from gorging on cakes and, you know, Twinkies or whatever, French fries. So, yeah, I think it depends on who you're talking about. Now, you know, from my perspective, you know, I don't 
overly seek vegetables, but I'll eat them. I don't I don't avoid them. I know some people think that, you know, uh, vegetables are going to steal their soul. Um, you know, that that's not the case. I, I, I feel like there's I, I just do what, you know, my, you know, kind of what comes natural to me uh, in terms of, you know, do you absolutely need a certain amount of fiber for a microbiome? Well, I think our knowledge of the microbiome is like disastrously uh, limited. And people who are making kind of conclusions that you need phytonutrients or you need, you know, a certain amount of species in your gut to be healthy, I think it's very early, particularly for obesity and long-term health. Now, there's some things we do know, right? What do we absolutely know right now? Well, you know, if you take a crap microbiome from somebody who has protein calorie malnutrition like Quashicor, and you take that and you inject it into a, a, a mouse, a mouse gets Quashicor. So, and if you take good bacteria, you know, a good microbiome and you inject it in somebody with Quashicor, they get better. And, and Quashicor is basically severe protein malnutrition with like edema in the legs. And I know, Sean, you know what this is, but the, the average listener may not know what it is. It's a type of malnutrition. So, what else do we know about the microbiome? We know that if you have somebody with C. diff, C. difficile, who basically has a completely eradicated uh, gut microbiome, that these bad organisms may come in and, and kind of spread. We know that if you take good uh, microorganisms from somebody who does not have C. diff and you implant it into their colon, that they do better. And it's actually even better to implant that good microbiome, the fecal transplant, than it is uh, with any treatment we have for C. diff right now. So what else do we know about the microbiome? Well, we know if you give kids probiotics, it, may, it doesn't help them at all. It makes them fatter. Um, we know that if you give somebody with pancreatitis or ileus probiotics, it doesn't help at all. So, I mean, I think – so I've, I've looked at the data. In terms of obesity, I don't think there's any – thing to to do there's no actionable intelligence right now i think for kwashikor and c diff uh there's some actionable intelligence but really for the average person like there's there's you can't like doing a colonic or taking a probiotic or uh you know any of this stuff i don't think there's any data to support it and in terms of like fiber you know i i consider it plus or minus if you're better with fiber, take fiber. If you're not better with fiber, don't take fiber. Um, I think that the data for its cardiovascular benefit and maybe appetite suppressive benefits are mainly for the person on a standard American diet. I don't think that anybody who's on a ketogenic diet will benefit satiety-wise from more fiber per se. I don't think that restricting it is necessarily better either. Um, and then from the you know, the constipation side of things, it's totally depends on the type of constipation. Um, so I'm not pro, I'm not against, I don't know how you want to take that. What, what would you put me at? Like midline? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's contextual. And I think that's a thing on people that say it's absolutely essential. I think that's stretching the truth. I think there is conditions. I think it can benefit people for the same reason you said, you know, does it, does it mitigate a glucose response? Does it potentially lower cholesterol? We can debate on whether or not that's actually beneficial or not. You know, uh, does it help in certain circumstances? I think it does. I don't think you can say it's essential for all humans, though. And I, I think the the microbiome argument is way, way, way premature to make that argument. Let me change gears. Let's talk about another topic that I think you'll probably have an opinion on. Uh, bariatric surgery. You know, gastric bypass, ruin why, gastric sleeve, all the stuff, chopping out your part of your guts to, to fix obesity. What are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, so uh, let's take a look at my household, right? So my household, uh, growing up, we had five members who were completely obese, okay? And I've lost 150 pounds with diet and lifestyle alone. My older brother, who was 450 pounds, is now down to 270 pounds with diet and lifestyle alone. Uh, my parents have each lost about 25, 30 pounds off their blood pressure medication meds, uh, decreasing their diabetes medications through diet alone. And so this is just my household. What about all my patients? I've yet to refer one patient, weight loss patient, to uh, to bariatric surgery. Um, 80, 80, roughly 80% success rate with weight loss, especially massively weight loss patients. I don't see a need at all to send people to bariatric surgery without significant attempts at uh, lifestyle change. Um, and, and that's with requiring, you know, it, it takes somebody who knows what they're doing to kind of guide these patients who are morbidly obese, um, who need, who may potentially benefit from bypass. So that's, that's my perspective on that. You have to go to somebody who knows what they're doing and give it, give it a real shot. Well, what about you know, what about all the data that shows that it's wildly successful? I think if somebody cannot do a lifestyle change, so one of those 20% that maybe that, that, that doesn't work for me, uh, I would tell them, you know, uh, I would ask them to at least try one, one or two more times. And if it doesn't work and there's you know, no sign of hope, I, I, can't, I can't think of a way around it. I think you have to recommend it. Um, I think you have to recommend it for these patients because it's there is some evidence that there's a mortality benefit. There's some evidence of uh, benefits in glycemia and and heart disease. So, you know, I'm stuck as somebody who knows it can be done without surgery. You know, I'm a big time advocate for lifestyle and diet approaches. You know, on the other side of things, you know, what do you do if you're if you've tried several times and you just can't and, and do you, you know, are you relegated to being 600 pounds? Um, I don't think that that's, that's humane either. So I think that it's a tough, it's a tough call, man. I, I want to say, I don't believe in it completely, but I don't think I can say that. Yeah. There's been, you know, certainly an effort to sort of, you know, cause there used to be some BMI cutoffs for, for, for gastric bypass. I haven't paid recent attention to the literature, but I know they were talking about, trying to get it for people with BMIs of 35, which is really not that big, you know, to, to, to think about that type of surgery. And then the other thing I'd like to ask you about is your thoughts on uh, guys like Dr. Jason Fung with, with, you know, fasting or extended fasting. Where does that have a role for your practice? Do you incorporate it all? Or what are your thoughts on, on both of those topics? Yeah, so so uh, it's interesting that you're mentoring uh, Jason Fung. So Jason Fung uh, and I and Dr. You know Brian Lenskis, we're we're all going to be bringing something kind of unique pretty soon. So watch out for that. So yeah, yeah. If you asked me like three years ago, I would have said fasting. Are you kidding me? That's a great way to lose lean body. You know, lean body weight. And I would have said that's completely crazy. These extended fasts. Um, I'm coming around to fasting. I think. And the, and the data, you know, every day these studies come out on, on time-restricted feeding and fasting and even prolonged fasts that show benefit. Uh, so I, I don't, I mean, I, that, that guy, you know, I, I say this sometimes, if Jason Fung and I ever disagree, just listen to what he says because, uh, you know, I think that um, he's been proven right time and time again. He's been doing fasting now for 10 years and, 
and with you know great effect. Um, so what about my patients? Almost all of them at about three months will be encouraged to either intermittent fast or time-restricted feed. Okay, and I don't implement it right away. I implement it kind of around the three to four month time when I find that it's easier to do. Uh, very rarely, I'll, I'll allow patients to do extended fasts, and 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 I'll, I'll you know support them with that. But there are some instances where I do that. Um, you know, particularly if there's stalls in weight loss and they're just not hungry and they want to fast, I'll, I won't ever kind of you know interfere with them fasting. Um, and I think that there's some evidence that it may, some clinical evidence that it may help with certain kind of autoimmune diseases just to decrease food intake in general. I've, I've heard of, you know, uh, GSP, you know, uh, St. Pierre had some great results with his ulcerative colitis with fasting and he worked with Dr. Jason Fong. So I think if you have an autoimmune disease, some extended fast may be interesting to try. Uh, but I think it's just kind of uh, N equals one and kind of uh, individualized approach. So I'm not – I personally don't do extended fasts. The most I'll fast will be like 36 hours and I don't even – I don't do that regularly. Uh, I'll typically do a you know, anywhere from 20 to – 14 to 20-hour fast daily. Uh, you know, the average American eats – Nonstop. The average American eats 16 hours, so it, it's ridiculous the way we currently eat. So I think that everybody needs to do intermittent fasting. I think a four to eight hour window is probably healthier, uh, and I think the evidence probably shows that 48 hour eating window, eating one meal a day is completely fine. I definitely believe in the benefits of intermittent fasting. The, you know, the two and five approach. I, you know, I've had some success with patients who fast on the weekends or, or fast two days out of the week and then kind of eat normal throughout the day. Uh, I have a lot of success in patients who can't do a very low-carbohydrate ketogenic diet, and so they'll do a paleo-type diet, and we'll do intermittent fasting for 18 hours a day. Uh, so I've had a lot of clinical success with a lot of different approaches, but mainly I try to push people into time-restricted feeding. Yeah, I know I, Dr. Stephen Finney is a, is a pretty – strong critique critic of you know prolonged fasting particularly and you know in my personal experience and what i do similar to what you do is i often eat once or twice a day you know and it's it's uh you know sometimes it's breakfast sometimes it's dinner you know i don't necessarily sit there with a stopwatch saying you know i can only eat this time because when i'm hungry i just eat and i think that's a nice thing about when you're eating a species appropriate diet it kind of regulates itself but i do agree i agree completely that we have this sort of snack food heavily dominated society now where, where you know we're constantly told don't let your blood sugar go get low you know it's a problem so you got to be constantly snacking there what are your thoughts let's let's switch gears a little bit on and i want you to specifically talk about this in the in the, in the obese or the morbidly obese patient how do you utilize exercise in this capacity do you find that it's something they all need to do is it something you have to taper in how do you approach exercise when you're dealing with these types of patients nobody is told to exercise absolutely zero percent of my patients are told to exercise exercise is brought up when they bring it up uh, and usually that occurs at like three to four months so typically at the tail end of my program which is about four months uh, patients will start asking me about exercise after they've lost 40 50 pounds they feel better Absolutely 0% are told to exercise. If they're exercising already, I tell them just do what you're doing as long as it doesn't increase your appetite. My primary goal in the first two to three months is fix appetite. 
once appetite is fixed, I introduce intermittent fasting. And it kind of happens naturally, just like you said. You kind of eat when you're hungry, and that kind of fixes itself. Uh, but sometimes it helps to to have them consciously try to like bring it down to six to eight hours, which is probably a normal species appropriate time. Um, and then you know, probably a month or two after that, when they're down forty or fifty pounds, they're gonna they they call me up and say, "Hey, give me a plan I can do at home." And when that happens, uh, I'm I'm recommending you know usually. I, I have people start slow. It's two to three times a week, 15 minutes of high interval, uh, high intensity interval exercise, and maybe five minutes of you know Tabata intervals. Um, so it'll be like a 20 minute thing they could do at home. That's super super easy, and they can do that for like up to three months. And when they're you know when they're ready to take the next level, I usually send them in to a gym or or tell them to kind of just Google a program and, and take it from there. But none of them are told to start exercising. I feel like it interferes with the appetite regulation issues if I do too many things in the beginning. Plus, imagine you're like a 350 pound. Like, I, there was no way I'm going to be able to run when I was 350 pounds. You know, there, there's just zero way. I mean, it would have been a disaster. It would have been a disaster for my joints and it would have it been terrible. So that why would I recommend that to any obese person? It's, it, I mean, if they want to walk, go ahead and walk. Um, so just, just, you know, to kind of backtrack a little bit here, uh, when I lost my first 80 pounds, I was, you know, walking 30 minutes, three times a week, binge watching walking dead on a treadmill in my gym. I mean, I was, you know, doing my, my one mile time. I think my, my was probably like 18 minutes. My two mile time was like North of 30 minutes. Okay. My two mile time now is 11 minutes. You know, and this is completely zero carb. So I just, you do not need to exercise. I binged watched Walking Dead and I lost 80 pounds with diet alone. All of my patients lose weight with diet alone. When you're ready to exercise, then you exercise. When you feel good. Do you think watching a bunch of zombies tear each other up was an appetite <laughs> depressant? <laughs> It's car- no, they're 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 probably going to be buying your book soon, right? Carnivores. <laughs> yeah. Hey man, let me ask you another question. Uh, this is another topic that's getting a little bit interesting. I know there's a guy named Bill. I, I, I want to butcher his last name. Legacos is talking quite a bit about circadian biology. Yeah, and yeah. Timing the meals. Do you believe that there's a benefit in doing that? And if so, do you incorporate that or talk to me about any thoughts you have on that? Yeah, absolutely. There 100 percent is. So. Um, Look, the the this is like the next frontier, the circadian the circadian rhythm. So I 100% believe in like blocking blue lights and limiting caffeine. I, I mean, this is all stuff I go into with my patients. Sleep hygiene, mental health, all this is tied to kind of the awake sleep cycles. Um, so I 100% go through this. It's a big part of lifestyle medicine. Now, in terms of the science of it, well, you know. Uh, Panda, uh, Sachin Panda, I believe he did a very interesting study where he did early time-restricted feeding and compared it to late time-restricted feeding. And I think pretty clearly there was good outcomes with early time-restricted feeding. And there's physiologic reasons for that, just so people know what that is. Basically, you wake up an hour later, you start your eating, and you stop about six to eight hours later versus like you wake up at like seven or eight o'clock and you take your first meal at lunchtime and you stop after dinner. So when you compare these two, the breakfast and lunch approach or the breakfast and kind of early dinner approach to the start eating at lunch and ending at 
at you know after dinner approach. It's the same amount of time, but one's in the morning, one's kind of later in the day. When you compare these two, the people who eat earlier do a little bit better with insulin sensitivity, with uh, body composition. So uh, why is that? It's probably when you wake up, you're more insulin sensitive. When the cortisol is rising in the morning, the stress hormones are rising, you're probably better able to to eat uh, and process the food. Your body's just uh, uh, better primed to use it. Um, so yeah, I, I encourage people to eat early and stop early. But this is like a one percent goal. I mean, I, you know, if somebody's like, "Look, I got to eat with my family," I say, "Don't worry about it." Then you know, have have dinner. You know, and and so I, I'm not. It it is a uh, like an ideal I I tell I educate patients about and tell them about, but I don't think this is a you know ninety nine percent is diet composition and carbohydrate restriction and eating real food, and if you do that, this is all kind of nitpicking and and so I think yeah the bottom line is I think there's a role to it there's a role in it and it, it's beneficial early you know eating is probably a bit better than late feeding and then another thing. You know, you had uh, Alejandro Freddy on, and he talked about the late eating and the blood glucose rises the entire next day. So, and these were in ketogenic athletes, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I don't know if you if you remember that he, he talked about this, and and I mean, this is a anecdotal uh, corroboration of what Panda found in his studies that you know glycemia is better when you eat early. So, yeah, I, I do believe in it, and I do believe in uh, limiting caffeine late in, in the night, you know, to kind of improve your sleep. I believe in limiting alcohol late at night to improve your sleep. And I believe in eating, you know, well before you go to sleep uh, because it'll, you know, eating late is associated with poor sleep hygiene. So, yeah, I mean, this is a big part of lifestyle medicine is sleep and, and the, day, the day-night cycle. Yeah, let me just, because I wasn't, I, I don't think I've read Sachin's study on this but did you know was there was you said there's a there was a benefit from eating early versus late with time restricted feeding. was there a caloric difference in that no you know no. they isocaloric, was caloric, yeah. isocaloric okay so it's just yeah. a purely circadian sort of benefit for that that's very interesting to see it was a and mild I, it was some mild differences i mean it was some glycemia differences uh it was uh some minor body composition differences but enough for me to say okay there's something here that i think it's an ideal we should strive for and then just like clinically i mean you know this right people who eat late they have a harder time sleeping they have more reflux um you know so it's so it the science kind of matches up with my clinical approach um, and so I, I generally recommend trying not to eat, you know, too close to sleep. Yeah, I think this is, but I think an overlying important context we need to understand is that, you know, we talk about these things, you know, and we have to remember there's big picture things and there's small, small potatoes, you know, and this is one of these things that, you know, like you said, 1% difference, more important, let's eat the right damn food. That's, that's probably the first thing we got to do. And then everything else is kind of just gravy you know or, or the icing on the cake if you'll use that bad bad analogy there because we shouldn't be eating a bunch of cake but you know i think cause so many people Keto obsess cake. about these small you know these small details that, that really and i say well how much does that really make a difference you know people are talking to me about well, what about the methionine glycine ratio and i said just freaking eat your damn steak <laughs> don't worry about that stuff but you know you got people that obsess about this stuff and i think yeah it's, i get i get know, the uh n3 to n6 you know the omega-3 to omega-6 ratio i get that all the time you know what's the right ratio to have just just eat real food and don't worry about it you know yeah i mean there's some people that you know everyone's a little bit different the way they process stuff and they think that they can you know it's just, they act like the body is not a giant system with millions of different inputs going on at any different second and you know you think you can control one variable and all of a sudden 
you know, it's going to fix everything. And I, I just have to say, you know, it, it, it's really complicated. We don't understand it all. We're probably never going to understand it all. There's some major general things we know that tend to work. And if you stick to those things, generally good things are going to happen. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the bottom line with the time-restricted feeding is uh, it's probably beneficial. I like it because people feel better. You know, they like not going to sleep, having food in their stomach. They sleep better. The reflux is less. I mean, this is all – there's no, like, major evidence to support those kind of claims. But anecdotally, my patients with GERD who don't eat close to, you know, bedtime do much better. So um, I find that it's easy for me to make these recommendations – and I, it, it helps. It helps people not to like. Uh, yeah, this is definitely minimal for weight loss, but I think it helps people's lives. Like they're not belching up, you know, food that they just, you know, just ate right before sleep. So it's just common sense things. And and you're right. There's no data for this, and we'll never know if everybody's going to act the same way. But you know what? I for now, I recommend it. Perfect. Well, I tell you, Troy, it's been it's been fascinating. I think I think. What I would say here is basically a bunch of common sense, good, solid advice. I mean, it's, I mean, everything you say, I'm pretty much in agreement with, um, you know, for, for, for all practical purposes, you know. And I think that's uh, hopefully more people will get, you know, get on board with the message. It's, it's exciting to see, you know, as, you know, as you've seen, you know, in social media, we're seeing more and more physicians sort of getting it now or at least buying into it or at least questioning the, the crap that we've been told for 50 years that, that clearly this clearly hasn't worked, you know, and whether you want to say people haven't followed the advice or not, whatever it is, there needs to be a, a paradigm shift if, if we're going to get something done. And I think, you know, it's good to see people like you there that, you know, again, you know, you can go into medicine, you can make a, a decent living and, and, and make quite a good money if you want, if you just want to continue to, to grind through the patients and do this, do the, the standard of care and, you know, do their knee replacements or, prescribe them their, you know, you know, depression pills or whatever. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a lot harder road to go and, and really, I think, address the, the, the real issues and, and to really get people healthy. And I think I applaud you and, and other folks like you that are willing to, you know, willing to do that. It's great to see. And thank you very much for doing what you're doing. Yeah, you know, there's no way that I can go back to, you know, being a prescription pad doctor. There's absolutely no way. I, I have to help people now. I can't spend seven minutes with them, you know, which is what the insurance companies want to pay me for. Uh, and, you know, I'm putting my money where my mouth is. 250000 is going into opening a practice. This is my money that I'm spending to help people lose weight without medications, get off their medications, and do it with diet and lifestyle. Yeah, and it's not just weight loss. I mean, as you know, all these other medical disease reversal. Yep, yeah, disease absolutely. Reversal. Yeah, and it's almost you know we, you know, you're not allowed to say disease reversal. You can't. How can you? <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, how dare you try to That'd say be, you cure people or cure you know do that? It's kind yeah, of crazy. you know what I'm I'm getting a lot of athletic performance people coming to me now. Like, hey, I saw you, you know, uh, doing really well on a zero carb, low carb diet. So a lot of a lot of people who are doing low carb, you know, who are losing weight, are now kind of asking me for for uh, you know kind of athletic performance advice. So I, I mean, I tell them what I can, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, and you're going to learn too as time goes by. You know, I spent a lot of my whole life has been about athletic performance, so I've got a, quite a bit of you know practical experience in that. So I, I'm I'm very comfortable talking about people about that stuff. But yeah, it's fun stuff. Zach, any last minute words? Let's let's wrap this up i gotta go exercise before i gotta go do some other stuff today so yeah um, no, let's, was... let's find out where let's find out where tro's at and uh and, and kind of sh- shut this one down man 
Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thanks so much for coming on. It's been great. I'm sure uh, our listeners are going to love a lot of the info that you've been able to share. But yeah, definitely uh, plug yourself with anywhere that people can find you if you want them to know um, or anything you got kind of coming up that you want them to know about. Yeah, yeah. So uh, drtro.com, D-O-C-T-O-R, tro, T-R-O.com. So drtro.com, that's my website. Uh, it has the address of my practice that's currently under construction. It has a way that you can contact me uh, if you want to do a uh, kind of weight loss consultation, the four-month program that I have. Uh, you can get me on Twitter, Facebook, you know, just look up my name and, and you can get out at me and, and find me. And something coming up, there's something really special that me, uh, Dr. Brian Lenskes, uh, um, Megan Ramos from the IDM program and Jason Fung are all working on together. So that's something to pay attention to. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it's it'll be really cool and it's coming up. Awesome. So stay tuned for that, folks. Uh, thanks again for Thank coming Thank you so on. much for having me. Yeah, sorry. Thanks for having me, guys. This is super fun. I, I really enjoyed it. I love. I follow both of you guys. I you know, uh, really like both of you guys. Both of your guys' inputs have helped me throughout my own journey. So it's a real pleasure and honor to be here. Hey, folks. Thank you for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Uh, we are very excited to have ButcherBox sponsoring the show a ButcherBox subscription plan uh, that will send you meat. So it's a real kind of hassle-free, don't have to go to the grocery store type of approach that gets you high-quality meat right to your door. Uh, Sean's been using ButcherBox for a while. Sean, why don't you tell us about some of your experiences? Yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, basically mostly just going with their custom boxes. I've been going with uh, ribeyes and uh, New York strip steaks. They're all uh, grass-finished, antibiotic-free, hormone-free. They're actually pretty decently marbled for a grass-finished product. I've been enjoying it. Lately, I've been throwing it on the, on the, uh, in the sous vide and then uh, reverse searing, or then searing it up in a cast-iron pan. That's been pretty darn tasty. I've enjoyed it. Uh, the consistency I found on pretty much every single steak has been very high, very good and very high. Uh, flavor's been good, and I really enjoyed it. I think uh, you know, looking around at some of the other competitors and some of the other grass finished products that you might get in the store this is actually a fair bit more economical and so i think it's a, it's a good value good quality and, and, and a very uh you know enjoyable flavorful uh way to get your steaks awesome yeah and folks if you want to support the show go over to butcher box get yourself an order of some high quality meat and type in the promo code hpo and you'll get a discount as well as some free bacon and you can eat that meat knowing that you help keep this podcast going thanks again hey folks Thanks again for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at hpopodcast at gmail.com. That's hpopodcast at gmail.com. We're both also on social media. On Twitter, you can find me at zbitter. That's at Z-B-I-T-T-E-R. And you can find Sean at sbakermd that's at s-b-a-k-e-r-m-d we're both also on instagram where you can find me at zach bitter that's at z-a-c-h-b-i-t-t-e-r and for sean it's at sean baker 1967 that's at s-h-a-w-n-b-a-k-e-r 1967 thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast.